Good morning. Still awake? Need a second cup of coffee? You guys ready? Okay. Let me uh, give you a little bit of encouragement right off the bat here. Um, It's nice and cool and dark in comfy chairs in here. Which is not good for Sunday, almost lunchtime. Okay, so you have a choice to make. You can either engage God's word in a way that it will radically change your heart. Or you can check out for the next however long it takes me to get through. Which if you check out, it's probably going to be longer. Um, I want to encourage you to engage the word. Because I'm not entertaining enough to keep your attention. So if, if you would, if you would open your Bibles to Galatians 3, that you would look at the text, you would engage it. God has something to say to you today. It's probably not going to be directly what I say. It may have, hopefully it has a part to play in it. But God, through his Holy Spirit, wants to speak to you through his word. And if we just come in here and go through the motions, we will have missed it. We have sung some great theology We will have prayed for some great people who are leaving us and going overseas to take the gospel to people who have never heard before and we will go home unchanged by it. And that would be a tragedy. So let's pray and let's dive in head first and just see what God wants to do today. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you that by your sovereign will, you sent your son at just the right time to die in our stead, that we may be released from your wrath and folded into your family and have promises evermore as heirs. God, help us see that today, but not only see it, Help us be changed by it and live it out. Lord, we need you to speak to us. We need you to change us. So God, would you do that in only the way you can? Through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, take away all distractions right now in our minds and help us focus and engage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're back in Galatians this week, and we're going to start with verse 23 and go through verse 29, which would end chapter 3, and we'll uh, begin chapter 4 next week. So, starting with verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the coming faith until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have, been, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
Now, the passage that we went through two weeks ago now, Galatians three fifteen through 22, the Apostle Paul reviewed 2,000 years of Old Testament history from Abraham through Moses to Christ and showing us how they were all connected in the unfolding redemptive plan of God. God gave Abraham a promise and to Moses the law and how through Christ he fulfilled the promise which in turn made the law indispensable. It was indispensable because the law, if you remember, acted as a jailer to us, condemned us as sinners to death. But the promise offered the sinner justification through eternal life. And this week, Paul continues that argument. And he continues to connect the fact that Christ came. And when a person unites with Christ through faith, they are justified. They become children of God and heirs to the promise. And Paul starts that argument in verse 23 and 24 by using a cultural illustration. And he talks about a guardian or tutor or teacher, some translations say. The type of guardian he's referring to was a family servant, one who would take the kids and they would take care of them and provide the children with correction and constraints and they would teach them what is right and what is wrong and they would restrain the child's behavior until they became mature enough to act right without compulsion. However, Paul's point is that the law is like one of these guardians. It's a strict disciplinarian. And it can only curve a child's behavior, but it is powerless when it, came, when it comes to making a child's heart good. You see, it's much like parenting. We give our children rules in order to restrain and protect them from rebellion and outright stupidity. Right? But what happens? What happens? Well, let's take a case study and I will change the names to protect the guilty. Let's say that Joe and Jesse want to play baseball in the front yard of the house. And they come to dad and ask him, and dad being a loving, caring dad, and knowing that playing in the street could potentially be dangerous, says, that's fine, but don't go into the street. Stay in the yard. And all is going well until dad looks out and checks on the two lads and sees Jesse shagging fly balls in the middle of the street. What happens then? A new rule is made. Dad comes out. The line gets pulled back toward the house a little closer. And every time Joe and Jesse rebel, there continues to be more and more rules levied on them. Until finally the boys will have to come inside because they've proved themselves immature and unable to honor their daddy. 
Dad has just learned the lesson Paul is teaching. That rules will never change his son's hearts. And this is what the law did for Israel. It provided direction and restraint. And every time they had a rule, they rebelled and more rules were added. To the point, when you read the Jesus Story Bible, there is a picture that comes up. And you can't see this much, but let me just read to you. There's a bunch of downcast faces in this illustration. Heaviness in their faces. And the scroll is rolled out in front of them. And this is what it says on that scroll. Rules. More rules. Even more rules. Yet more rules. Bonus rules. More and more rules. Rules and the rules. About the rules. Bonus supplementary rules, more supplementary rules, rules and rules, additional rules, ancillary rules, plus some other rules. Rules and further rules and a couple added rules, extra, extra, more rules, plus further other rules. Rules, rules, and more rules. Even more extra rules, supplementary rules, further rules, plus additional extra rules. Even more and more rules. Extra additional rules. Further and further rules. A few more rules, extra supplementary rules, and rules and rules. Some yet more extra bonus ancillary supplementary rules. You get the picture. It's a vivid picture. My sons even understand that. All these rules gave light to the way a mature member of the people of God should live. The problem was that it only had the power to restrain the outward behavior. It held no power to make their hearts good. Just like your rules do, parents. Why is that? Because Hebrews 4.2 tells us this. It is because those rules are not met with faith in the hearer. For good news came to us just as it did to them, Israel. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You see, faith was missing. Pastor John Piper writes this, the law works the same way today. If you don't have a heart to trust God and rely on his mercy, the law will feel like a burdensome, offensive, deadening job description given by a harsh schoolmaster. But if you do have a heart to trust God and rely on his mercy, then the law will feel like a much-needed and desired prescription from a wise and beloved physician. And that is just what it is. God, our beloved physician, never meant this oppression to be permanent. He gave the law in his grace in order to make the promised prescription more desirable. There is a purpose and a plan and a destination in Paul's words in this passage. Not a curse that would remain, but one that would restrain sin until the, fu- the coming faith that would be revealed. There's music in the background. And if you can hear it, it's vitally important.
the theme is prepare ye the way of the Lord. The law locked us up to prepare us for the coming king. And I would sing it for you if I could. Verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law was our guardian, disciplinarian, until Christ came for one purpose, that we might be justified by faith, not by works of the law. Verse 25, he says, But now that faith has come, now that faith has come, we are not what we once were. We are not under the law. We no longer are in need of a guardian. We are in Christ Jesus. We are all sons of God. United to him by faith, you are one with Christ. You are mature. But what does it mean that faith has come? Because it can't mean that faith didn't exist earlier. Paul's been making an argument all the way through Galatians that it is, salvation has always been about faith. And if you remember chapter 11 of Hebrews, which was right before what Noah preached to us last week, there's a litany of celebration of Old Testament faith. So it can't mean that faith didn't exist. I think what Paul's getting at is that the object of faith has now come. And now everything is radically different. Faith has come according to God's redemptive plan in the form of Christ. And God is fulfilling the purposes and the promises of Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I, that I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone for, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Through the gospel, the coming of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and the convicting, regenerating work of the spirit, God is giving people new hearts. He is making them good. Those who are by faith in Christ no longer are need of a guardian because the Spirit of God now indwells them. And Christ, by faith, has delivered us from the law's harsh discipline. And because he makes us sons who by faith obey through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are released to worship and obey the law as an act of worship. Because he's empowered us to keep it. It's unbelievable. Verse 26 says that for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Everyone here today, everyone 
who has come into this place to worship, who has, set, has, who has been set free from bondage by placing their faith in the Son of God is a living, breathing testimony to the fact that faith has come. You are truly sons and daughters of the King. You are King's kids. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Faith has come to even people like you and me. Gentile sinners, broken, bruised, sinful. Not only has it come, this sovereign grace and power has taken up resident, residence in your heart and made us new. Now, if you're tracking with me and you're engaged, this should be a stopping point for you. This should be a place where you're looking into the mirror of the word and something Amazing is taking place. You see, if you truly understand the hardness of your own heart apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, the coming of faith, you cannot help but stop right here and think about the utter miracle it is that you are justified by faith. Not only justified, but sons. And not only sons, but heirs. What difference would it make in your life if you woke up every morning, got your cup of coffee, walked to a quiet place in your home, and just meditated on that? That while yet you were a sinner, Christ died for you. that he gave you the gift of faith through the Holy Spirit that you might believe and be justified. And not only that, not only did you, were you saved and acquitted from your sin, but you were adopted into his family. And not only adopted into his family, but you've become an heir. My guess is that would radically change the way your day went. It would radically change how you live. That is the only way I know to produce and to think and to help grow a heart that praises God and rightly reflects back to Him the radiance of His worth. I don't know any other way. As Paul goes on, the great distinction in this passage and throughout this passage of what it means to have faith is to be in Christ. And if you read through many of Paul's letters, he uses this phrase often, in Christ. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? Verse 24 says that we're justified by faith which means that we are acquitted from our guilt, reconciled to God, one with Christ. Verse 20, 
6 says that to be in Christ means to be a son. Not only acquitted, but adopted into God's family. You have not only been saved from the just penalty of your sin, but you have become part of God's family, the church. And verse 29 says that as such, you have become an heir. All the rights, privileges, and promises given to Abraham are yours in Christ. To be in Christ is to be one with him, united to the king. But not only one with Christ, in verse 28, Paul says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one in Christ to, the only way to truly understand verse 28, we have to back up to verse 27. So look with me, stay with me, there's a point to this. Paul is writing to a certain situation where the Galatians were being led to receive circumcision in order to be accepted into Judaism. Paul looks directly to their Christian baptism, pointing to them and saying to all of those who have been baptized according to genuine faith, you have engaged in more than mere ceremonialism. You have clothed yourself with Christ. They were in Christ. And if they really knew what that meant and reflected on their own baptism, they would not have been led astray. Because what it means to be in Christ makes being Jewish not a big deal. Which is Paul's point in verse 28. Neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female. There are many distinctions in human society, many cultural distinctions. Whites despise blacks, blacks despise Latinos, Republicans despise Democrats, Democrats despise Libertarians. In Paul's day, it was no different. You see, Jews despise Gentiles, Greeks despised uncultured people. And Romans just felt superior to everybody. But Paul makes it clear here that in Christ, all of those distinctions go away as they relate to salvation. They are meaningless. If Christ has saved a person, then they are a child of the king and an heir. They are one. This is what produces a proper understanding of our unique unity, you, the church, are all one in Christ Jesus. Literally, this phrase means you are one person in Christ Jesus. So whether you're rich or poor, black or white, Democrat, Republican whether you are slave or free, whether you have brown hair or green, whether you have a tattoo or not, it doesn't matter in Christ. We belong not only to God, but to one another. And the things that would normally divide us now 
cannot be allowed to divide us. We all come to Christ on level ground. Every one of us comes to Christ dead in our sin. And we all stand in Christ on level ground, justified sons and heirs by faith. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, Paul says. He says that you're part of the family. So those of you that have never felt like you belonged anywhere in Christ, you have the mother of all family trees. Huge. You're in God's family. For we have already seen in verse 16, in what we studied last two weeks ago, that all the promises made to Abraham find their fulfillment in Christ. And if we are one with Christ, then we too inherit the promises. And this great privilege comes to us not by birthright or legalistic keeping of rules, but by an act of faith in the generous free grace of God. If you haven't noticed, this absolutely puts to death any self-boasting. You come to Christ with nothing. Absolutely nothing. So what does this mean for you and I today? It's a great argument Paul makes through this passage. So what? So when we walk out of here, what, how do we apply that? What do we do with that? I've got two main things that I'd like to encourage you with. First, it means that we as the church cannot live any longer under the law. Faith has come, and in Christ there is freedom. Not freedom from any restraints, but freedom and empowerment to live out what pleases God and honors Him. We must believe and live by faith in the gospel. Because faith has come. And we read in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You see, faith plays a huge part because just like the law held us captive because it was not accompanied by faith, so the gospel condemns us if it's not accompanied by faith. The gospel does not save by mere mental assent. You can't just say, yeah, that sounds good, I'll believe that. It condemns the guilty under judgment if it's not met with faith. The gospel is the message of salvation, but it is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts through faith that justifies us. Listen to me at this point. Cultural Christianity is killing you and me. It's killing us. It's absolutely sucking the life out of us. When we live like Gentiles who had no idea who they were in Christ, 
They were easily led astray by cultural religiosity. And you and I put ourselves in the same boat every single day when we don't understand or apply or remember or meditate on who we are in Christ. What do I mean by that? You know when it comes. When we make claims to salvation around what we do, where we go to church, or some ancient experience we've had that we can hardly remember. All of these scream that we are not living by faith in the gospel. If we allow for one moment the lie that any works of ours puts us puts us in a right relationship with God or puts God as a debtor to us somehow, that we could earn his blessing that way, we are not living by faith in the gospel and we will find the law a harsh taskmaster. If you believe that you can do something to atone for your own sin, to make yourself more presentable to God, you are no longer living by the gospel. The law will crush you until faith comes. This is why I believe Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, to examine yourselves, to see whether you are in faith, Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. In other words, evaluate. Are you in Christ? Are you living by faith? Will you pray and ask God to give you the gift of faith? Or are you still living under the guardian, the harsh disciplinarian of the law? Does your life represent the gospel you profess to believe in? Are you really living a life of faith in Christ? Are you bringing to Christ? Because the answer should be nothing. You should be humble, broken before Christ, desperate that He would regenerate you through the power of His Holy Spirit, and then He would help you walk by faith. Secondly, We must live as one. The gospel demands that you and I live as one. That all of the old cultural distinctions have been turned on their heads. In Christ, there is no Jew, no Gentile, slave, free, black, white, seminary or non-seminary. Those distinctions are of nothing, no use to the gospel. They are hindrances to the gospel. They are hindrances to our unity. And you are all one in Christ. 
So how does that play out? It means that when you and I refuse to talk to someone in this body because of some cultural distinction or personal preference, we have sinned against Christ in his body. It means when you and I talk to someone in our small group, but it's about someone else in the body, so, you can, so we can, quote unquote, pray for them, your gossip brings division with it and you have sinned against Christ and his body. And when you are lured into becoming a self-appointed referee, walking around with your whistle and pointing fingers at everything and everyone that does something wrong, but you're unwilling to serve them and unwilling to help solve the problem, you have sinned against Christ and his body. You have brought division to what God has unified. This passage teaches us that in Christ, we are, whether we want to admit it or not, whether it's comfortable for us or not, connected and unified at a level that we will probably never understand fully until Christ's return. And anything we do that might take away from our living that out fully puts us in direct conflict with the promised inheritance that we have. You see, we have to ask, our, ask the question, what did God promise Abraham? If we are heirs to that, if we are Abraham's offspring, what was it? Well, one of the things that God promised Abraham was that he would bless him so that he could be a blessing to all the nations. And God, by his grace, has blessed you beyond your imagination. He, through his sovereign will, has saved you from his own wrath. And through the death of his own son... He has made you alive. But he has not only done that, he has taken you, an acquitted felon, and brought you into his home, brought you into his family, the church. And particularly, he's brought you into this part this particular body, this particular part of his body. So the question for us today is how do we respond to all that? What do we do with that? We evaluate, we repent, and we place our faith once again anew in the gospel. So as we end today, I want to challenge you to do that. I want you to ask God boldly to show you where you are not living by faith in the gospel. And to confess that. Repent means to turn from it. 
Acknowledge it. Don't hold on to it. Don't try to hide it. It will kill you. Repent and turn from it. Place your faith anew once again in Christ, his work on the cross, his grace and his mercy. And then live it out as changed, unified people. You see, the church, as Pastor Mark Dever says, is the gospel made visible. The way you and I interact is the way the world sees the gospel. If we're not unified, if we don't bring, if we don't live the gospel out to one another, then the words that we preach and the things that we say really don't mean a lot. But if there's a testimony of the church that she is unified in Christ and is putting the interest of others above herself, loving one another, repenting of sin, turning from it, then when we preach the gospel, there's a picture of it as well. And when somebody at your work comes, in to, comes to Christ because you've boldly shared with them, they can be enfolded into this body and loved and cared for. And there's a place for them. So anything that we have done that takes away from that really is a sin against Christ and his, and his body. So let's p- pray, let's repent, and let's end in a magnificent time of worship that God would do this for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the author and perfecter of our faith as we learned last week. And I pray, Lord, that you would perfect it in us. That today, for those who don't know you, Lord, that they would put their trust in you this day for the first time. And those of us who have known you for a long time, Lord, may we be renewed to our commitment to live in light of who we are in you justified sons, heirs of the King. And pray this in Jesus' name.